morning, Petaluma. Welcome to Talking with Rabbi Ted. This is Rabbi Ted Feldman from B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair also of the Petaluma Community Relations Council, taking this opportunity on KPCA to share with the community the lives of many leaders in our world and trying to explore ideas and concepts that will help us make a better community for ourselves. Our special guest uh, in the first segment today is Father Michael Culligan from St. James Catholic Church here in Petaluma on the east side. Welcome, Father Michael. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rabbi Ted. It's great to be here. Yes, this is your first time on radio, right? Very first time on radio. Okay. So scared to death. Scared to death. Well, should we stop, start with those concepts? No, yeah. we, we won't start there. Yeah, we'll be fine after a little while. Yeah, thank you. So I wanted to uh, get started with you. And first of all, welcome. I'm glad you're here. We've uh, developed a nice relationship over the past couple of years. And it's a pleasure to sit in the radio studio here with you and explore some things that might be important for our community to know. Yes. First is for them to get to know you a little bit. So, <coughs> how long have you been here? Where did you come from? You have a Bronx accent, I hear? No, no, no. <laughs> I, <don't know>. <laughs> <coughs> I have been here uh, in Petaluma, you mean? Yeah. Petaluma, uh, 33 years at, in the east side in uh -huh. St. James. Uh -huh. And a uh, big community there. A big parish. How yeah. large is the parish? The parish about 2,500 families. Wow. Okay. So it keeps me busy. Mm -hmm. Keeps me busy. And uh, a lot of activity. A lot of activity. A lot of, uh, you know, uh, organizations and committees. Uh, keeps, me, keeps me going. Keeps me on my feet. So where did, where did your parish start? How did it... It started it? from... Of course, the big parish here was St. Vincent's in 1859. And... Uh, Eventually, when, when Petaluma grew quite large, then they needed, a, in the east side, they needed another parish. So, um, I was founded in 1962, I think, 62. And it has grown, of course, uh, since then as well. Are there any particular groups, ethnic groups, or oh, yeah. people who yeah, started the yeah. parish? Well, they originally, lots of, lots of Portuguese, lots of Italians, mm -hmm. uh, some Irish. Uh, Portuguese and so on, and uh, <coughs> it, uh, there's a, a great diversity of culture mm -hmm. in, in the parish. A uh, lot, a lot of the the ranches now on the east side would be uh, our parishioners. Mm -hmm. You know the farmers uh, and uh, the cows and the dairy business. You know that would be all. Are they among the 2,500? Yeah, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Check <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good people, very, right, very right. friendly, hardworking people. Uh -huh. Yeah, uh, when did you come to the United States? I came to the United States in 1959 uh -huh. because uh, our seminary in Dublin, uh, St. Priest, uh, after the Irish immigrants, you know, there was a huge immigration from Ireland after in the 1840s, and uh, our seminary was established to uh, to stay with the immigrants and uh, take care of them. So uh, in uh, in, in after the gold rush, especially a lot of Irish immigrants came here, and uh, we we uh, in Sacramento there was, there was a great need for Irish priests, and uh, we had uh, about two every year. Two priests came from Dublin to the Diocese of Sacramento, mm -hmm. and uh, 
you know, established parishes all up in the gold country, up in Nevada, and a huge diocese, I remember. It was larger than France at one stage. Mm. So, uh, in the early days, life was rough there. And um, Anyway, they, uh, that was the tradition, you know, the getting priests from Ireland to Sacramento. Uh, now there are very few in, uh, from Ireland in, uh, coming to Sacramento like that. Uh, that, that stream has kind of dried up. Now we get the priests from Mexico and the Philippines, Africa sometimes, India. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the Irish uh, tradition kind of is, is fading out. So the the Irish tradition of people, men becoming priests? Yeah, 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 and coming to the United States. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes, <coughs> I understand. So what, what kind of changes have you seen over the years in your... In your parish, what do you? How do you think life is different than when you first came here? Well, it's uh, Rabbi, it's it's, it's in, enormously changed <coughs> because uh, of uh, the big event of, of our time was the Second Vatican Council, and uh, the idea of the ministry changed, the liturgy changed, the role of the laity changed, uh, and uh, huge, huge changes to what we had been ordained to do. Mm-hmm. We were kind of uh, in the parish, the priests would do everything. Then after Vatican II, uh, the laity were empowered. The laity were empowered to to you know take roles in the parish. Uh, they could be lectors and Eucharistic ministers and youth ministers, uh, all that kind of stuff. So instead of being kind of a one-man show, and now the the people were uh, empowered, let's say, to to serve and to minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of ministry was uh, broadened a lot, so um, that was very good for us, of course, too. Right. Uh, less no particular right. uh, ministry, <coughs> and uh, it, of course, the, the, the Vatican Council to uh, uh, you know broadened our outlook and, and ecumenism. You know, before the before Vatican, the Vatican, we hadn't much. Uh, much time for ecumenism, but after Vatican II, it, it became very prominent and uh, a, a kind of an essential part of, of uh, Catholic ministry. The reaching out to separated brethren, uh, se- reaching out to all religions. Uh, that e- exclusivity kind of was, was put aside, and, uh, and we were now a part of. We weren't. Part of a, a, a bigger, a bigger, bigger uh, spiritual endeavor. Mm. How do you see that spiritual mm. endeavor carrying out these days among the younger in your in the Catholic mm. community? Uh, are you experiencing the same thing we are, in that there's a great secular society that we're confronting and attracting younger families, mm-hmm. and etc.? What's that like? Yeah, that's the very same as as, as you state. Um, a wave, a tsunami wave of secular and materialism and and uh, that kind of thing. As and uh, the sense of God, you know, the sense of God in in, in nature um, is is not there for the young people. They they're all into technology and they're uh, absorbed and all that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, the, the 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 spiritual dimension is is absent. Uh, and everything is else is so much. Fun. They're looking for entertainment and uh, uh, feeling good and all that stuff. 
So it's so different from uh, <coughs> from what we were used to. And the dim people are all into that, though. Yeah, they they are into that. I yeah. think in the uh, in the general community, yeah. I think all spiritual communities yeah. are struggling yeah. with that. Yeah. Any innovations that have been made um, liturgically <coughs> or otherwise to attract the younger people? Well, this? Uh, yeah, we have a kind of a specialized youth ministry thing, and uh, highly trained, uh, you know, people to to deal with the the youth and their uh, their problems and everything, but. It's it's a really really difficult uh, uh, ministry, really difficult. Um, we have lots of uh, you know innovations in, with the media thing, you uh-huh. know, with videos and all that kind of stuff. <coughs> Where we have good speakers available to talk to kids about uh, any subject you talk, you know, you, you say. But uh, even then, uh, they it goes in one ear out the other. Their engagement while that video is on, but when you switch it off, then they, they forget what it was about. <clears throat> I have a group that uh, that I teach, and uh, from week to week, you know, you know, you wouldn't know what we did last week because their attention span is very brief. Well, the thirty-second yeah. commercial yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah. is about the extent mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, yeah. You have this garden at, at the church. What is that? A community garden? Well, community garden. Yes, yeah, that's 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 good. It's a beautiful garden, actually. A huge variety of plants and trees and flowers. We have now added bees. Mm. Bees, <coughs> and uh, we've got two queen bees, I believe. Mm-hmm. But uh, is that part of women's rights? No. Okay. The. We had that uh, vacant land there, and uh, there were people who were very uh, involved, you know, in uh, uh, kind of a, the green movement. And uh, they saw uh, an opportunity of uh, developing that place. Uh, they made an, a lovely garden, uh, and we give the, the produce then to carts, and mm-hmm. we don't use much of it ourselves, <coughs> though we have kind of a, a market. On Sundays, give it away. Too much. That's wonderful. It's great to be part of the community in that way, in a natural way, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to address with you or discuss with you today is uh, obviously Pope Francis has made a big impact in our world. Uh, From my perspective, at least a positive impact in, in his sensitivity to the vulnerable, yeah. to the needs of the poor, yeah. uh, etc. Um, what What is your, within what you can talk about or what's fair to be said from your perspective, what has this been like for you, this radical change yeah. in the church? Uh, we love it. Okay. We love Francis. And his name day was the other day. His name was, his uh, name was George, Jorge, uh-huh. Jorge Bergoglio. And on his... Uh, on his name day, uh, he, uh, he he gave uh, a gift to all the uh, the places in Rome. There are about apparently about forty five or forty six uh, places for the poor, you know, for feeding, mm-hmm. and uh, he gave them all some special ice cream as a gesture of uh, you know celebration for his birthday for his name day what what do you mean by name day uh, what is that like mean? you your name is theodore right. and uh, your name day would be when that particular person
Wilson, of Saint, you know, case Saint oh, George. Oh, so Saint, Saint George. Francis. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. this is Saint Francis after whom he's named. He is named no, he's named after George. Oh, okay. Jorge Bergoglio. Okay. That's his real real name. Okay. <laughs> and um, anyway, we love Francis because he is he is a kind of a servant leader. You know, he's he's not into pomp and circumstance. And not into diplomacy. He's very pastoral, very basic, down to earth guy. And uh, he's written a new book now, uh, and, and uh, came out about a month ago. And it's not theologically oriented at all. It's just for ordinary person to read about holiness and about the little steps we take every day to be holy. Uh, and very readable. And he connects. He connects with the, with the, the ordinary people in the pew. They love him because of his simplicity, and uh, he, he, you know, he's reaching out to to decentralize the church because all that power in Rome uh, is not good. So he's going reaching out to the peripheries, and he's appointing cardinals and archbishops and priests from, you know, far away, far away countries I've never heard of uh, in the third world. Uh, and some very, very famous dioceses in Europe uh, haven't got uh, a cardinal. You know, they, they automatically would, would have cardinals for hundreds of years. Now he's easing that. He's going to uh, the peripheries to, to get the new leadership. Um, we like, we like uh, his, his simplicity, his, his love, especially for the immigrants and uh, the... Uh, Refugees, especially, and and uh, he's been he's been he's been he's, he's, he has the, the the ability to touch people in simple ways. You know, he was uh, I think defining a sense of holiness can be measured in a society from his perspective by how the vulnerable and the poor are treated in that society. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I think. Uh, we read the article in the New York Times. Uh, we talked about that and yeah. comparing him to what's happening in our government around the vulnerable oh, yeah. in the society, yeah. uh, etc. It was very profound to read that. Yeah. And I believe he's also taken a position that he can actually say he did something. He should have done something differently right. at different right, points. Right, right, right. When, and when we have uh, papal and fallacy uh, as a standard of the church. How does that fit in with uh, that? would be papal infallibility. Yeah, okay, <laughs> right, papal infallibility. Uh, Thank yeah. you. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's very apparently available to all kinds of reporters, uh, communists and uh, all kinds of people that normally uh, popes wouldn't, would or near, mm-hmm. but uh, he's 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 very confident and uh, very self-assured, very humble. Mm-hmm. Uh, very very humble, humble man. And uh, I think uh, the decentralization is, is going very well. In fact, uh, the other day he has appointed three women to the con- to the congregation of uh, of the faith, and that's uh, totally unheard of. I mean. That, that congregation has been dominated by, by men since about the 15th century. So he has three new advisors to that August body, three women. Uh, well, 
you know. Uh, and how have the, the conservatives in the church... They, they don't like it. They don't they like, don't it. like right. it at all. Right. They, are, right. they, they he's some, he has some great opponents and opposition in, in the Vatican itself. Mm-hmm. They don't... Uh, especially that when uh, the big controversy was about... Uh, Giving Holy Communion to divorced people, and uh, they, a lot of the conservatives thought he was changing the doctrine of the church. <clears throat> but uh, but he he's coming at it from a different perspective than just canon law. He talks about uh, accompanying people and uh, in being not being exclusive. You know, we have to treat deal with people who are. Not in perfect situations, mm-hmm. which we, most of us. Mm-hmm. Most people are not in perfect situations. for sure. Right. And uh, he has a strong opposition there. Uh, so, uh, but he's, he 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 likes that. Actually, he likes the, he 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 thrives on that because he likes dialogue, and he's, he he doesn't issue big statements or, or big pronouncements. Mm-hmm. He 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 he's. His modus operandi is to dialogue, and uh, and he, he, he that, that, that's the Jesuit tradition, you know, see, judge, and act. And so I, I would assume that the American Council of Bishops and the American church system is so much more comfortable at this point uh, with his presence there, except uh, for yeah. pockets here. Uh, yeah, yes. I, well, Rabbi. I think a lot of the American bishops are too happy with him. Oh, really? <coughs> okay. Because um, they would be much, uh, uh, much more, uh, let's say, coming from canon law, mm. and the doctrine would be supreme. But he comes from, uh, you know, uh, ministry to people, ordinary, poor people, simple people, and uh, he he would he would be more pa- pastoral. Much more pastoral than a lot of of, of bishops. Mm. Yeah, I, I, you know the same tension lives it within certainly within the Jewish yeah. structure too. Yeah. We don't have uh, a leader who is yeah. over everybody, yeah. but we have the tension between those who say we have to follow these laws yeah. and the teachings exactly as they were in a legal system that was developed around it, yeah. and on the other side of that. Uh, the same agenda yeah. of compassion, yeah. taking care of our world, yeah. meeting people where yeah. they are, yeah. and trying to yeah. minister to them yeah. in a loving way. When when he uh, he had the encyclical, I mean the the yeah the paper encyclical about uh, the earth, you know the the it, it was it was quite a shock to to everybody mm-hmm. because he was talking about the, the our, our mother earth. The respect, the reverence, the holiness due to the earth, not exploiting it. And a lot of capitalists hated that. I can imagine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. So he doesn't uh, back down from, uh, you know, he doesn't seek controversy, but uh, he certainly opens up a lot of vistas to us, mm-hmm. uh, especially especially the, uh, the, uh, the poor. And he has, you know, in Rome, organized all kinds of showers and lunches for them. Very, 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 very paternal, right. pastoral. Yeah. How does, you know, from a human, from human history, how does someone in that position, it's hard to imagine that position, mm-hmm. but how does someone in that position assure 
his legacy after he's gone. After all, he is yeah. up in age. Uh, yeah. it will not, no one is in that position forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so <coughs> the, the roller coaster of history sometimes intrudes well, in, yeah. in this in progress, yeah. I guess, if you want to call it that. Well, that's, uh, that's easy to answer in a way because he, has appoint, he can appoint the cardinals who elect him. Mm. Now, 80, the, the, you need, I think, uh, if you, I think there are 120 cardinals that mm. elect the Pope. Now, for the last couple of years, he has been, a, when cardinals retire at 80, or whatever it is, mm. he appoints another one. So, if, if he's another around for more, for, uh, for a couple of more years, he will have appointed uh, more cardinals who think like him, mm-hmm. you know, cut from the same cloth. Mm-hmm. So he, that's a great advantage to ensure that the, uh, the legacy of Francis continues. It's much like the Supreme Court in the United States where people are appointed for life and therefore the president has the chance in a similar way of assuring something in the future by appointing people who think in a particular way. I yeah. we, won't, to, we won't go there. Too. We won't go there. No, I <laughs> won't go there either. <laughs> uh, yes. So I, for a few minutes, I wanted to, we had an interesting discussion about your uh, history of relations with the Jewish community and meeting Jewish people and, and all that. Yeah. I think you indicated <clears throat> that it wasn't until about 15, 20 years ago that you had the <laughs> first closer yeah. contact with a, with yeah. a, a Jewish person. Uh, yes, know. yes. Well... Uh, again, you know, after the Second Vatican Council had opened us, uh, we had, uh, we invited a couple of, I mean, 10 or 12 years ago, uh, one of the rabbis to do, to lead us in a Passover. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were fascinated because the Passover means a lot to us because that was the last of it. And uh, then uh, another rabbi later on, a few years later, did Passover. And uh, you did one a couple of years ago, two years ago. Yes, I did. And we'll be looking forward to next year. Okay. Uh, and uh, we, we're getting better at it all the time. You know, we have the uh, the plates and the paraphernalia. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was a delight. Uh, our people loved it, loved the, uh, the presentations that, that the rabbis gave. And, uh, you know, we, we had a sense of... Uh, not only looking back 2,000 years to Jesus, but looking back 5,000 years to Moses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was a, a great feeling of being a part of something, something huge, something great, mm-hmm. uh, marvelous. I mean, the, the, and the, you know, we, we absorbed a lot of that, the freedom, the, the celebration of freedom, of slavery and so on, and shared that. It was great sharing that with you, and you're sharing that with us. It really was a a spiritual experience. Well, it was for me, too, to be there with you and know how attentive everybody seemed to be to understanding this process and and all of that. And... um, but next year you have more explanation. More <laughs> we were, you were way ahead of us. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I'm thinking that certainly uh, the church had early on, probably earlier in your life, had been given out many messages about the Jewish people. And hopefully that has evolved in some ways over the years. And 
the connections that you have made with the Jewish community here yeah. uh, have been really precious to me uh, and, uh, and to our community. I think it's an important step forward given our history. Yeah. And the last time we got together, um, you, when you got in the car, I was, we were going to lunch, and you got in the car and you told me you read this book about yeah. the history of the Jewish community yeah. 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 Uh, by Kenneth Kahn. That's right. Right? Who's That's uh, right. waiting to come <coughs> into our studio in a few minutes oh, uh, to continue this <coughs> discussion. So what was it like when you read that? What was I, was, I, I had no idea and not a clue about the early days of the Jewish community here in the 1920s. <coughs> and, uh, I, you know, I, I was amazed to find how organized or how intellectual they were and how politically involved they were mm -hmm. and uh, their, their life, uh, the rise and fall of the, the people, you know, and the business. Uh, that was fascinating. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, was, I was visiting somebody in the parish and they were reading this, this book. And I, they, they said, did you ever hear about it? I said, never, haven't a clue. So they gave it to me and uh, I could read it once and parts of it I've done twice mm. because you know it was a fascinating story about how involved politically they were right and yeah. you know Zionists and communists and all kinds all of kinds of things yeah. in the conflict yes and, and they had their own libraries and everything in their homes and they subscribed to the, the New York uh, Jewish papers mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it must have been sort of a lonely life, uh, in, in, in a way, in the kibbutz, you know. They, you know, they held, worked hard. They worked very hard. They did work very yeah. hard and were uh, became a prominent part of the Petaluma family, yes. the community here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we still have their families yeah. who are living here. Just, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And that legacy, that legacy continues. It's yeah. very, uh, very important for us. Yeah. And so I want to thank you for this opportunity to have you sit in the studio and have this brief discussion. There's yeah. so much more for us to, to discuss. Oh, yes. Well, but lots more lunches to have. Lots <laughs> more lunches to have. We'll keep working on it. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, during our second segment today, I'm going to be speaking with uh, Kenneth Kahn, uh, yeah. uh, author of Comrades and Chicken Ranchers, yeah. who will give us uh, his little update on what he's discovered in the community yeah. from the time he was here writing this book, interviewing yeah. the community, and taking care of his connection that he established with the Jewish community yeah. of Petaluma. Yeah. So thank you very much thank for you. being here with us it's today. This is KPCA FM 103.3 on the FM dial and kpca.fm on the Internet. Thank you.
Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted here at KPCA-FM. It's great to welcome now into our studio Kenneth Kahn, who has a very special connection to the Jewish community here in Petaluma. Uh, welcome, Ken. Good morning. It's great, great to be here. It's great to have you here. Uh, Father Michael gave a little introduction to your book a few minutes ago. It was so coincidental that he brought it up, as you heard, in the last uh, time I had lunch with him. And uh, here we are. He got to meet you. I think you even autographed the book. <laughs> I did, and it's always great to find a reader of that book. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. So th- that, bo- that book was published in... 1993, 19 years after I first came to Petaluma. Wow. So I guess the mysterious question that maybe even outside of the Jewish community in Petaluma, what what was so curious that you devoted all this time and part of your life to coming up here? What was there? Well, it started um, with a question that was put to me by a student, and this was when I was teaching in the late 1960s at the Black College in the South, and the question from the student was, am I Jewish? And she asked because she was black and she was trying to figure out her own ethnic identity. And one of the ways my students did that was to question their teachers. And it turned out she knew more about who she was than I knew about who I was. And so I left with a gift from my students, and that was this question. And when I came back to Berkeley to finish my graduate work in history, I was looking for a way to... um, inquire into Jewish-American history and answer this question about whether I was Jewish. And uh, I discovered a place to answer it, and that was Petaluma. I had a friend whose grandparents had been Jewish socialist chicken ranchers in Petaluma. I discovered there was a community of them, and on a little inquiry, I discovered there were not only the immigrant old-timers, but their children and grandchildren, and this was a place that I could answer that question. Then it turned into other questions, which we could get to. All right, well, one question always leads to another question. Certainly, that's the way life is. So this this attraction to come up here was part of your journey, your own journey for personal identification and to understand something about uh, your people. That's right. It was to understand myself and my people, if uh-huh. they were my people, and they did right. turn out to be my people, out to be your people, for sure. And um, this is the time of, uh, well, Alex Haley's great book, Roots, and the great television series and the quest for ethnic identity, and African Americans were doing it, and I became interested for Jewish Americans. So I I wanted, eventually, I saw that I could tell a bigger story about Jewish people in the United States through the school chicken ranching community. So how did that journey begin and, and unfold? Up here? Well, yeah, it began in 1974. I came up with my friend Zelda, whose grandparents had been in the community, had been chicken ranchers. And we came up and started interviewing the immigrant generation. And by the immigrant generation, I mean um, Eastern European Jewish immigrants who had settled in Petaluma in the first couple of decades of the 20th 20th century, 19-teens and 1920s, and had established this rich and at one time very famous community. Um, And I started 
interviewing the immigrant generation. This is my grandparents' generation. I came from Chicago. My grandparents were Yiddish-speaking immigrants from Eastern Europe. And so I started talking to these old-timers and tape recording their life stories. Mm. And that was the beginning of this uh, journey. That was the beginning of the project. That's Still project. trying to figure out if I was Jewish. Uh-huh. But I, I answered that question soon enough. And by the way, all of the, not all, but many of them were very secular. They were anti-religious. Mm-hmm. They had grown up in a kind of very orthodox religious background in the old country and Russia, Poland, Ukraine. So like me, they were secular, but they were culturally Jewish. They were uh, politically Jewish, and uh, I felt very much a kinship with them. They, they were familiar to me, and uh, I thought if they had no questions about whether they were Jewish, then surely I was Jewish. So that question got answered. Hmm. So what was there about Petaluma? How did you know, this, this town, what... How yes. Did that, how did that start? Yes. A little, little history of that. Yes. So um, they were chicken ranchers, and they had settled in Petaluma in the early part of the 20th century uh, because um, for a variety of uh, – Petaluma was one of the big poultry centers on the West Coast, egg and uh, chickens, meat birds and laying, laying hens as well. Um, and uh, Jewish people began uh, moving into that onto little uh, egg ranches, chicken and egg ranches, in the early part of the 20th century for various reasons. Some were uh, had a kind of Zionist uh, ideal. That is, they would learn agriculture, and then eventually they would move to Palestine, where uh, uh, European Jewish uh, migrants were settling on kibbutzim, this is really the basis for the founding of Israel decades later. They were part of that generation, and these were people who came to Petaluma to learn agriculture and to go to Palestine, which some did. Others were left-wing, were more communist, and uh, they came to show that Jews were not middlemen, um, but could live off the work of their hands. They had been accused anti-Semitism in, in uh, Russia, accused Jews of... Um, being middlemen of living off of other people, and so they wanted to show that Jews could work with their hands. Other people came because it was an alternative to city sweatshops and pushcarts, and uh, didn't. Uh, was one said to me, "A cow? Now that's a complicated animal, but a chicken, <laughs> not, <laughs> not hard to uh, rent a farm, uh, get a loan, uh, get a raise of chickens, and you're in business." Uh, Oh, it's easy to do chickens, right? Well, <laughs> easier than cows, apparently. Easier than cows, apparently. Okay, so in these, what did you discover in these interviews? What did you... Well, I discovered there was a vibrant community. Uh, there had been a vibrant community uh, of the immigrant generation, the East European immigrants, that had continued um, through the Depression, World War II, the 50s and 60s, and that there were children of this immigrant generation who had grown up in the community, many of whom were still around, and there were even grandchildren, which was my generation, the baby boom generation, grown up after the war. And so I found, and of course the community had changed enormously from that immigrant community of the early 20th century, and so, which was 
a community that in a way replicated the old world, shtetl, small, ingrown, very intense, a lot of characteristics of the shtetl. And the community had changed over time, was still cohesive, still many of the same families there over three generations. And I began to think this is a way I could tell a bigger story. Um, that is the story of Eastern European Jewish immigrants uh, in the United States over generations, which would be a story of immigration and assimilation, because by the time you get to the, the, the immigrant generation were very distinctively old world, I thought. Um, and by the time you got to the grandchildren, my generation, they were very Americanized. And the community had changed, too, over those decades. And so I wanted to try and tell the story of one Jewish, Eastern European Jewish immigrant community over decades in assimilation. And that was what I set out to do, to interview the three generations. Along the way, I discovered there were Holocaust survivors who had come to Petaluma. I interviewed them. I interviewed their children. Um, there were pre-World War II exiles from Germany who came. The Holocaust survivors came after the war, of course, but there were pre-World um, War II Central European German and Austrian immigrants and their kids who I interviewed. There were many Gentiles who had many different relationships with the Jewish community who uh, I interviewed, ranging from communists to um, lawyers who did legal work and undertakers who buried Jews. Um, and I interviewed um, many people in the San Francisco Jewish community who had had contacts with Petaluma over the decades. So I tried to get a kaleidoscopic look at this one community over time. And then uh, tape that all of these were tape-recorded interviews um, over years. And then I transcribed them all, and then I rewrote them into the story of this community in their own words. With uh, aliases used in the book. Yes. Not identify the actual people. Yes, and I did use aliases. The, I had good intentions for doing that, and that was to give um, my narrators in the book um, a little bit of anonymity so that somebody couldn't read the book and just... Uh, check with the telephone book in those days and, right. and start right. calling yeah. somebody. As it turned out, one of the surprises I had was that one of the things that irritated people in the community about the book were all the aliases. People wanted real names. And they figured out who... And I have in my office um, copies of the list of translations of who the person really was. So, yes. And that list was passed around among the generation there, too. Uh, to find out who who's really being spoken about uh, in the book. Yes, and I should say that um, about a couple of weeks after the book was first published in 1993, I came up to Petaluma to talk about the book, and by then that list had a writ, was an embryo, pretty well developed by then. <laughs> I'm sure it was. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking as you were describing this, when you go into B'nai Israel Jewish Center in our club room, in the Sildal club, club Room, we have a photo from 1925 when our building was dedicated. So I'm thinking that the people that you met actually are the children or grandchildren of the, some of those people, or some of those people were 
could not have been part of the interview. Yes, some were. Some of them. Yes, some of them. Some were. Okay. I mean, many yeah, had yeah. died already. But yeah, I, right. when I came up in the 1970s to do my interviews, uh-huh. I reached the last members of that, that generation, immigrant generation. So there right. were some people from that picture and others who had come after. Right. But I, I got enough of that generation to be able to recreate their world in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, of course, the families now are dispersed in many different places, some of whom are still here. And over the years, at least the years that I've been here, and I'm finishing my 13th year soon, uh, you've come up occasionally and con- had contact with the community, and you've followed, sometimes from a distance, uh, what's happening here. So let's move a little later and see what your reflections are on where you see this community and over since the publishing of the book and what it means to you following your life as a Jew and your life uh, in your career and how you think about the world and what you've seen up here. Yes. Um, so there are a couple of different dimensions to this uh, to this. Um, and one is myself, and in the community, in the Petaluma Jewish community, I found a story that helped me think about my own life. I mentioned that I was searching for whether I was Jewish and answered that question, I thought. Maybe not the best answer, but one that was sufficient for me. But um, in the community, I recognize that immigrant generation as a generation of my own grandparents in Chicago, who I did not know much about. And the children of the immigrants, the second generation, the American-born generation, was the generation of my parents. They had been born in the United States of Jewish immigrant, uh, Jewish immigrants had grown up in Jewish immigrant communities on the west side of Chicago. And then my own generation, the baby boom generation, born uh, after World War II. And um, when I did my interviews in Petaluma in the 1970s, it was in, I had joined up with the revolution in the 1960s. That's part of what drew me out to California, uh, to come out to Berkeley to do graduate work, but also to join the movement. And um, by the mid-1970s, the movement had collapsed, and I really was questioning, where was I going next, politically, historically, community, social life, marriage, all, all of it, the whole thing. I, didn't, I felt a little bit at a loss. And so in studying the Petaluma Jewish community, I was able to look into these questions of um, my, the world of my grandparents, the shtetl-like world, this very solid world of family, of community, of politics, of work, of certain kinds of commitments and truths that they were certain of. And uh, the second generation, uh, this generation that grew up in the United States feeling partially like they were Jewish people, they came from a, from a community um, of people who um, were old world, spoke with a Yiddish accent, who dressed funny, who had these radical political ideas, who just didn't fit in, and they wanted to 
move into broader American life. And then my generation, which grew up as Americans after World War II and really began searching for our own way in the 1960s with all that that upheaval meant to people. And so in Petaluma, I thought I could find my own story in a way. Uh, not that it was an autobiographical story, but I could search out my own experience uh, through the Petaluma Jewish community and ultimately to see what happens with that third generation, the baby boom generation, my generation. How did it all come out at the end? And when I finished the book in 1993, 19 years after I began, there was already a fourth generation that was coming. <laughs> and I had to stop for a couple of months and think, am I going to start on this fourth generation? And I did not. Mm-hmm. I tried to finish the book, which I did. And uh, But the story went on, of course, after the book. And so I thought I was done with the book in 1993 when I published it. It was a huge accomplishment for me. I had changed careers. I had gone through tribulations that writers go through writing books, and I published it, and it was a small success, but a success, and uh, I thought I was done with it, and uh, so 20 years later, um, uh, in uh, 2011-2012, there was an exhibit at the Contemporary Jewish Museum in San Francisco that depicted Bay Area Jewish history, and it had some sections on Petaluma. And I went to see it. Some Somebody from Petaluma called me and told me I should go see it. And, uh, of course, I'm living in San Francisco. It's where the museum is. And I went and I saw it, and there were some terrible distortions in the exhibit and distortions that I thought told something about the Jewish community, about the people who run the museum in San Francisco anyhow. And so I dove back in. I was retired by then and kind of looking a little bit for what to do. And uh, I dove back in to find out what had happened to the community in the 20 years since I published the book. And also to try and understand why the museum made some um, really egregious errors about the history. So that brought me back to it. Want to describe those errors? Because I know that uh, subsequently, you have written a couple of essays regarding that experience and an update essay on your journey uh, in your connection with Petaluma. So perhaps you want to go into that a little bit more. Sure. Yeah. sure. So um, these essays or articles are published in a magazine called Jewish Currents, um, which is pretty easy to find online. And um, there were three significant problems with uh, the Contemporary Jewish Museum exhibit. One was they left out half the community politically. Half the immigrant community were communists. They were called the Linka, the Yiddish term for the left. And um, they were written out of the story, just not, didn't appear in the museum account. And the second one is a little more subtle, but it was a kind of triumphalist story of. Um, Jewish immigration and assimilation, not so much for Petaluma, but they told it in the whole exhibit. So there's no loss, no searching, no conflict, uh, no fighting. 
<laughs> not much I'm fighting. Not fighting. And, and I'm I'm putting it a little baldly. It's not. Yeah. It wasn't that simple. But um, I thought it was um, uh, it kind of, uh, as one of my Petaluma informants put it, white bread, mm-hmm. kind of white bread exhibit. It was, it was sort of taking out um, the, the, the fire and the fury. And at least in Petaluma, uh, Petaluma is a story of conflict, it's a story of generational conflict, political conflict, work conflict, um, all kinds. So that was the second problem, and maybe the biggest problem, although the first, leaving out the communists, really, uh, I thought of it as censorship. And the third problem was they said that the community had died out in the 1950s. So, I, of course, <laughs> I knew that wasn't so, because I had been interviewing people all the way up to the suburban settlers of the 1970s and 80s, and and even though I wasn't real active with the community after the book was published in the 90s, I'd see people from time to time. I'd be up here. And I knew there was a community that was ongoing, but it changed a lot from the old chicken ranch and steadle. But it was here, and uh, so I thought, um, I better do something about this museum exhibit. And that led me off on this new escapade. And you got little response from the museum. Well, I sent them two letters, and uh, they were polite letters, um, although I was very angry. Um, And I got no response to the letters at all. Later, somebody from the museum said they had been misplaced. Um, So I got no response, and so I decided I'm going to write something about this. And uh, the first thing I wrote was a letter an op-ed for Jay, the, uh, the uh, magazine for the Northern California Jewish community, a very broad-minded uh, uh, newspaper, which I respect very much because it has a lot of points of view. It serves its readers well, I think, and they published my op-ed criticizing the exhibit of this eminent museum in San Francisco. It was very honored and, and in many ways is a very fine museum, I think, but not with this exhibit. So I wrote a critical uh, op-ed and got a little bit of response. It actually flushed out the museum a little bit. And uh, But I felt what an op-ed wouldn't do justice what I wanted to say about that um, exhibit. And so I've, done, I've now published these two longer essays to try and explain what I think is really going on. Um, not that I've interviewed anybody from the museum or know what their thinking was, but I've tried to look into these questions again. Yeah, one of the things for me as the rabbi of this community here in Bene Israel uh, is that I deeply appreciate uh, the history of this community and what the generations before did to make it what it is today, even though it's very different, like everything else in the world is very different. And I'm very concerned that as a new community of people moving in, how that sense of the past can still influence who we are today and what we could become for tomorrow. How do we help people adopt the legacy of this community and the rich history that we have. 
and use that history as a springboard for people to connect with each other and feel that they're really part of something that's enduring. And do you have any thoughts on that from your, as a historian, as somebody who looked at this particular community and what that generation may look like in uh, the next few years, those generations? Yes. So um, let me say a few words about the, res- about the responsibility of the historian quickly. Um, one of the things that really upset me um, about this exhibit and irritated me and prompted me to act was the censoring out of the communists. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I thought, as a historian, I believe that history is subject to controversy, controversial interpretations. People don't have to agree at all. That's quite better if they don't. But there does have to be truth-telling. And um, you eliminate a whole political group at the risk of the historical legacy that we want to pass on, what you talked about, the importance of the history to this community. So it's moved past this history. It's a very different community now. But you've got to be able to know what that history was factually to be able to honor it and to truthfully move past it. And I thought the museum and its exhibit did a tremendous disservice to its viewers, most of whom wouldn't have known. Um, But... uh, the way we learn from history is by having some accurate factual basis and interpretive basis that we may disagree about, but um, it's got to be there. So um, I, I, I think that history is just crucially important, and I've been impressed by the current Jewish community. So I've come to know it better by virtue of doing this article, the respect for its own history and the honesty about its own history. I saw a 150th historical anniversary celebration a couple of years ago, and I saw people coming to grips with their history in this little community. They were. And I was very moved, and I was very happy to have been a part of it. Well, we appreciated your having been there that night. It was a wonderful occasion for the Petaluma Jewish community. People came from afar just to be here to celebrate the 150-year history. And I must tell you, in my office, I have the handwritten minutes from 1864 of the Board of Directors, and I frequently go over and I just touch it and feel that sense of this amazing past that we have had. And I want to thank you for being here with me today because you have helped to uh, embody that past in written text in a place that we can look to and to be a friend of the Jewish community here in Petaluma over all these years. So, Kenneth Kahn, I want to thank you for being here today. And this is Talking with Rabbi Ted. We'll see you next time. LP, Paluma, California. Feel like you're beginning to slouch? Starting to hear creaks and pops in your joints? Then All Things Pilates is for you. 
Instructors and health practitioners join me as we teach you how to move with strength and ease. You'll be educated about the two main approaches to Pilates, classical and contemporary. I'm Darian Gold. Please tune in Sundays at 2 p.m. on Free Range Radio, KPCA 103.3 FM. Free Range Radio KPCA is a nonprofit low power community radio station. Through member programming, the station promotes diversity and a window to the unique personalities in our community. Our mission is to promote freedom of expression, provide access to communication tools, and to foster the use of media and technology to better benefit Petaluma. For more information about KPCA and how to get involved, visit kpca.fm. This is Mayhem. My show is Mayhem. I play local music. I play new soul. I play old soul and everything in between. To paraphrase the late Warren Hellman, hardly strictly soul. If it rocks and it moves me, I will play it. If you like that idea, tune in the first and third Tuesday of the month for a dose of mayhem. I heard there was a new radio station in town. Oh, oh, you mean Free Range Radio KPCA at 103.3 FM. Yeah, that's right. How did you know about that? Well, I just looked where all good information comes from, Facebook. Just follow the Free Range Radio KPCA page and join the discussion. Just keep it polite. Facebook? Yeah. Our on-air personalities will post updates and information on their shows, as well as events and news concerning the station. KPCA LP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM. (laughs) 